Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by LGC and FutureGov. Join us each month as we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to have the latest episode delivered to your device each month and share this podcast with your colleagues. You can do so by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Local Authority. This is the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and FutureGov. I'm Nick Golding, the LGC editor. Each month we're bringing together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing local government. The theme of the Local Authority is one of change, how councils can change their area and themselves for the better. And today we're discussing local government's response to climate change. Our conversation takes place weeks before world leaders gather in Glasgow for the COP26 Climate Change Summit. While action to prevent global warming is a priority for national leaders, the same is also true of local leaders, three quarters of whom in England have declared climate emergencies, committing their council to take action. But what action can they take? In this country, councils oversee local economies, housing, transportation, planning and the local environments just to name just a few responsibilities. But councils are also short of money, have limited powers, and do not necessarily have the skill sets to guide their place to net zero. So how can they make the biggest impact? We have a great panel with us today. Our first panelist is Kevin Freer. Do you want to explain who you are and what you do, Kevin? Yes, thanks, Nick. So I am the portfolio holder for Climate Action at Lancaster City Council, and I'm also the founder of Climate Emergency UK. And we also have Rebecca Willis. Hi, I'm Rebecca Willis. I'm Professor of Energy and Climate Governance at Lancaster University. And we also have Stefan Webb. Morning, uh, I'm Steph. I'm the Police Director at FutureGov, supporting central local government around climate uh, emergency issues. Brilliant. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, Kevin, I wanted to start with you. So you're the deputy leader of Lancaster City Council and you've pledged as a council to be net zero by 2030. How, how is that going? OK, thanks. Um, it's going really well as far as our council emissions are concerned, helped very much by uh, large government grants, so 6.8 million from Salix funding to decarbonise our leisure centre, which is our biggest carbon emitter. Um, we've started replacing our refuse trucks with electric trucks and our vehicles with electric vehicles. And we're, we're slowly working through our um, other buildings. So I would say that that aspect is going really well. As far as the, the wider district, that's that's a whole other story that I'm sure we'll get more into. But, you know, we, we are very limited in, in what we can do, especially as we're only a district council. So the county council, for example, are responsible for transport. So is 2030 a realistic year for Lancaster City Council itself to be net zero? Yes, it, it, it is. Um, whether it is for all councils, it really does, uh, as it's competitive funding, it means that the funding we've accessed isn't necessarily available for everyone. So, so yes, it, it is for us. And it would be for most councils if they, if they can access the funding. 
So what have you done so far as a council and what do you still have to do? So as I said, we've replaced two refuse trucks so far, but that is really so that we can trial them and make sure they can do all the different rounds. We are currently fitting uh, air source heat pumps instead of the gas boilers to our leisure centre and building a 1.3 megawatt solar farm to provide it with and, and battery storage. So it's effectively going to be decarbonised, both with heating and with, with electricity. And we've um, bought quite a number of, I think it's about 16 um, electric vehicles. And uh, we are already hiring those out when we're not using them via co-wheels to the general public because we don't have a car club in, in Lancaster. So th those are some of the things we're doing with our own estate. Um, Lancashire is obviously a two-tier area where there's certain responsibilities of the city council and certain of the county council. Is it a more daunting prospect for local government as a whole to get to net zero across Lancashire? Yes, it is. I mean, we're, we're very lucky that in May there was a change of administration in Lancashire, still conservative, but much more willing to work with districts on uh, decarbonisation. So they now have a uh, cabinet member for climate change. So they're, they're much more open to um, collaborating on things like, you know, how, how we're going to change movement around the city centre so that it's much easier to walk and cycle and things like that. So as you look ahead for the next nine years, what are the big barriers you face as an organisation to get to net zero? Then also beyond that, what, what were the barriers that Lancaster, Lancaster as a place faces to, to achieve that target? Oh, the, the barriers are just uh, phenomenal. Um, they're, they're ones of uh, legislation. We want to tell developers to build to uh, passive house standard. We think we can. Uh, we've got to get that past the, the planning inspector, but every other district has got to decide to do that as well. We've got to retrofit all our houses, and that's not going to happen. We, we, we're geared up to um, advise residents with the Green Homes Grant, but of course that fell apart. So without really significant funding, there's a limit to what we can do as far as retrofitting all the existing housing is concerned. We need to greatly improve our public transport. There isn't the funding for that at the moment. There are, there are huge challenges. So you said two particularly interesting things there on housing. One about that you want the passive house standards, this exemplary um you know climate friendly building standards to be the the standard that all new developments are going are going through i mean is that something you, you genuinely think you can get through you think you've got sufficient powers to get that through and secondly you, you obviously mentioned retrofitting um is that you, you know what proportion of the total stock has been retrofitted so far as far as um, taking the second one first, as far as our own council housing is concerned, the, the level is much higher than the general um, housing stock. And we are retrofitting our council housing slowly but surely to a higher standard. As far as the, the whole district is concerned, the, the housing stock on the whole is, is pretty poor, as it is in most of the country. So all the basics will have been done, the, um, the loft insulation, cavity wall insulation. But beyond that, I don't think there's much been happening. As far as our when our local plan was adopted, 
in 2019, um, or sorry, 2020, we immediately launched a climate change review of the local plan, put a lot of resources into it, a lot of expertise into it. We got consultants to check on the viability because that's the big issue with holding developers to a higher standard. And we think we can hold developers to a passive house standard and it is viable. So that is the, the standard that we're aiming for. Now, that isn't necessarily going to be the case with every local authority. Depends on, on all sorts of things like land price, housing price, you know, other infrastructure costs. But we think we can do it here in Lancaster. We're consulting on it at the moment. It will go for inspection sometime in the first half of next year and we'll see what happens. Now, in addition to your role on the council, you've also founded Climate Emergency UK. Do you want to explain what that, what, the, what its role is? Yeah, so it started simply collecting climate emergency declarations and um, enabling councils to, to look what others were doing and enabling residents and activists to, to find out what their council was doing. Then we moved on to collecting action plans and we collaborate with My Society, who are really good at handling data. So it's a very searchable database. So if you want to find out, for example, what other local authorities are holding developers to passive house standard in their local plans, you, you can search through the database, what they're doing about electric taxis, all kinds of things. And what we're doing now, because people need to know what whether their local authority has a good action plan or not, where we've recruited a lot of volunteers and we have looked at every action plan and assessed them for certain criteria. Pretty basic things like whether they have a link to, to their action plan on their website, whether it's easy to find, whether they are have involved their community in um, drawing up the action plan and what plans they've got for collaborating with their communities going forward, things like that. So we're hoping to publish that early in the new year. And, and the, the objective is to compare and assess. I mean, is it, is it almost to put it in a league table? Yes, it will. It will end up like that. It's going to be searchable in, in various ways. Obviously, it's not fair to compare one council with another just across the board. Uh, it, it'll depend on things like the size of the council, the type of council they are and things like that. So it'll, it'll be comparable in all sorts of ways. It's not going to be just one league table. But you'll be able to compare what, how your authority is doing to another authority of a similar kind. Great. Well, can I turn to you, please, Rebecca? Um, I mean, you're familiar with the work of councils. They obviously have limited resources. I mean, from, from your perspective, how can councils make the biggest impacts on fighting climate change, bearing in mind their, their, their resource constraints? Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, local areas need to play much more of a role in climate action than they are doing at the moment. A lot of my work is working with uh with 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 people with with members of the public talking to them about about what sort of climate action they would like to see and there is a really strong emphasis people put a really strong emphasis on local level action they want to see um local areas in charge taking the lead taking responsibility now the the the, the good news is that loads of local areas want to step up to the plate on that and i was part of a research project that uh, published its findings in 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 march this year part of the place-based climate action network and we we interviewed um 
local decision makers, politicians and officials across three cities. And there was overwhelming support for um, local areas taking a lead on climate. But as you said, it's a really difficult job at the moment. And, you know, Kevin, um, who's work in Lancaster, I know and love, Kevin's doing a brilliant job to try and push it forward. And, 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 if you know, if I might say, you're 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 actually, I think, playing down the barriers, Kevin. Even though you you said they were huge, you've probably played them down because the fact is, local areas have no responsibilities, no targets, and no resources around climate. So we're starting from a pretty low base, and and it's you know, if I was in charge of a local authority, I wouldn't know what to say because on the one hand, I'd be tempted to sort of you know throw my hands in the air and say I, I can't do this you know you're I haven't got the I haven't got the the, the the people or the budget or the skills and so I'm just going to sit on my hands and do nothing but then obviously mostly I would be thinking what can I do what is you know w- what can I do given these limited powers and resources and thank goodness most local leaders are doing the second of those so how can people bear, bear in mind those fairly immense constraints that you talk about I mean how can you devise a climate strategy at a local level well I mean, it's it's an important part of my job to say i wouldn't start here because one of the really important things i think that local leaders have to do is to collectively make a case for more powers more responsibilities and more funding and it's good to see that's happening through networks like uk 100 through you know the work that kevin and others are doing through the climate emergency movement that is happening and that is a really really important part of the mix and you know i i i think or hope that more responsibility for local areas is coming because if you see the challenges that we need to address over the next you know 5 10 15 years they are things which are local so it's decarbonizing the transport system reducing car use it is as kevin said tackling the building stock um insulating people's houses Um, It is a load of questions around how we use land, whether it be for growing food or storing carbon by planting trees. These are all very local things. And so it would seem to me crazy that national government's thinking of doing that without local input. So I would say, you know, number one thing, keep lobbying, guys. (laughs) Having said that, it is also really important to... um, uh, for for local areas to 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 do what they can w- with the limited um resources and powers and uh, and you know it's brilliant to see examples of that springing up i was looking just the other day of what oxfordshire's achieved with uh, project leo which admittedly had did have a huge slug of funding thrown to it but it's sort of trialing what a local energy network could look like where you actually link energy supply and demand to reduce demand overall um you know you've seen what areas where where there is some kind of coordination around transport you know you've seen some really good stuff happening around around transport particularly in big cities that do have those powers so we are seeing some really good stuff emerging but in this in these interviews that we did with local decision makers last year and earlier this year the the, the big issue was not 
outright opposition, but what you might call sort of passive opposition, things like people not thinking it was achievable or people saying, yes, of course, we need to act on climate, but, you know, look at all these other priorities. So it's a it's a much more complex field now. We're all behind the ambition, but it does tend to get lost, I think, in the day-to-day workings of a lot of councils. Um, you, you say we're all behind the ambition, but sometimes there is a perception and sometimes a reality that economic interests and climate change interests can collide. And you've been particularly critical of Cumbria County Council, which initially passed the uh, building of a, of a coal mine there, which, which has been hugely controversial, but a lot of people there say you know, the future of the local economy depends on this. I mean, what, what's your reaction to that particular case? Yeah, so the there will be a, a there will be a standoff between jobs and environment if the only jobs on offer are high carbon jobs. You know that it's inevitable. If you come to a local area and say, "Look, look, here's five hundred jobs in a mine," then the mine's going to be popular, right? Especially in an area like West Cumbria, but. What we have to do is to align the um, a, 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 align the jobs with the climate strategy, and you know that sounds that sounds obvious, but it's it, it actually requires some forethought. So, my criticism of Cumbria County Council would be that it has not taken a sort of active, forward-looking approach to economic development the way, for example, the Humber has with its wind cluster. Instead, it has sort of sat back and waited to see what comes to it and, you know, what came to it? A a coal mine proposal. So it needs a much more sort of active stance on um, economic strategy and developing and bringing those green jobs to an area. There was a a report commissioned by Cumbria Action for Sustainability, a local charity who identified 9,000 potential green jobs across Cumbria, um, you know, compared to the 500 in a mine. Now, of course, those are potential jobs because they depend on both local and national strategy being in place. But believe me, there are no, there's no shortage of work to be done if we're going to get to net zero by 2050. There's loads of jobs that need doing, whether that be in renewables, in uh, retrofitting people's houses, in, you know, uh, sorting out transport. I mean, there's so many jobs at all skill levels, but it takes, it's, it's a huge job of coordination to get that in place. Um, a lot of your work is about the the intersection between the, the citizen um, and the state on, on, on climate governance issues. Um, bear, bearing in mind that, I mean, how should councils be involving the local population in some of the really tough decisions they need to, to make? One, one brilliant thing we've seen over the past year or two is that when councils have declared a climate emergency, what a lot of them have done next is to say, OK, what, what can we do and how, we can, how can we involve people in decisions about what we do? Now, the danger is if you stick a sign up on the door of the town hall saying climate change meeting here tonight, 
you will get people who have a stake in that debate, mostly people who are really, really keen to see climate action happening. And that's a really important group to work with, of course. And then also people who, um, you know, might be opposed to climate action or who might, you know, a very few who might dispute the, the, the science. So what my work looks at is, you know, rather than the sticking a sign on the town hall door approach, how can you actually work with a representative cross section of local people to develop plans that work for, for, for everyone? And so a lot of local areas have declared a climate emergency and then held a process like a citizens assembly or citizens jury, which do exactly that. They bring together anywhere between sort of 30 and 100 local people who are representative in demographic terms of the population of that area and they listen to uh, witnesses experts in various areas climate science policy business and so on and then those local people actually put forward recommendations to the local authority and that's a really really good model and 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 you know you find that people come up with incredibly sensible and sort of locally appropriate strategies the problem then comes that whether or not they can be implemented takes us straight back to the question of the, um, the, the the power or lack of power of local government in this country. We're certainly going to explore that that, that power question later on. So, th- thank you, Rebecca. C- uh, c- can I turn to you now, Stefan? Um, please. So, c- can you explain um, how is it that you, at Future Gov, supporting councils' work on on climate change? Um, so we've worked with various different councils on uh, different aspects of how they organise themselves to to kind of uh, address some of the, the biggest challenges around climate. So picking up on Rebecca's point, we worked alongside Blackpool Council to help kind of co-design and deliver their climate assembly. Uh, so kind of helping to convene the assembly um, completely 100% online. So this was at the start of COVID. So kind of getting that representative sample, kind of supporting them to be able to participate meaningfully in a, a kind of digital way online uh, and then working with them to kind of design some some uh, outputs and recommendations that could be used by the council equally we've worked with Oxford council on their zero emission zone thinking about how that might impact local businesses and how you make businesses more aware of the changes that they can make towards more sustainable logistics um, and we've also been working with South End council as part of an innovative UK project looking at the horrendously titled Smart Local Energy Systems, uh, uh, which is looking at how you might include uh, solar PV, air source heat pumps, batteries uh, in retrofitting kind of social housing estates. Uh, So we're we're often the kind of user-centred design partner, I guess, uh, on these projects. Because I think, as has been touched upon, uh, obviously uh, engaging communities in uh, responding to climate emergency is a, is a really critical and uh, opportunity for councils. But we also think it's important, as Rebecca was alluding to, that it's not just the usual suspects. And even when you're designing technical schemes, uh, actually it's really important to design those with the, the end users in mind. So that's, that's, those are some of the kinds of roles that we've been taking alongside councils. Um- it's quite interesting. You've, you've been to so many different places, varied places. You know, Blackpool is very different to South End, of them, apart from the fact that they're, they're, they're by the sea, but not in Oxfordshire. But um, I mean, how did you find the willingness of local populations and for the council, for that matter, to engage in the in the thorniest questions? 
for sure, there's a, a huge amount of, of diversity of, of interest. And I think the most important thing, certainly we found uh, in Blackpool, we've also done some kind of community engagement work in Westminster as well, is kind of meeting people where they are. So helping the council to understand the uh, everyday circumstances of their, their population and trying to make the climate response kind of speak to those, speak to the, the concerns of the residents rather than uh, necessarily being about the, the nature of the emergency and uh, uh, the big thorny issues actually try and bring it down to, to the level of local residents. But there is a huge diversity. And I think one of the things that we found from the Smart Local Energy System project, where we interviewed councillors actually in Cumbria, uh, in, in Cornwall, uh, uh, was the need for councils to learn together. I think one of the overarching things I've taken away is kind of councils need to, to act like it's an emergency, uh, as, as you touched upon, and as the great work from Climate Emergency UK shows, a lot of councils have declared a climate emergency, a lot of them have plans in uh, and starting to put plans in place, but they're not necessarily uh, acting in concert or acting a across the different tiers of government to kind of help uh, them help councils do more so I think there is a big opportunity yes there's always going to be diversity uh, amongst the types of responses that councils have to have to make and want to make in response to the climate emergency but actually more kind of peer learning more understanding of where they are uh, in comparison with similar councils I think is going to be a really important part and perhaps something where there, there could be more government investment. I 100% agree with Rebecca that there needs to be more powers and uh, uh, more investment here. But equally, some of that investment should perhaps go towards kind of joining up and enabling the sector, enabling local government to kind of learn together because we need to, to experiment more, actually. Like if we are acting like it's an emergency, uh, we need to try fast, fail fast and kind of learn from those failures as well. Um, you, you mentioned some of the technology there, things like smart energy, I mean, the technology exists for us to um, have fewer emissions, but it, it's not the expense of it dauntingly, um, well, dauntingly expensive, really. Uh, I think, well, I always like to quote uh, an architect from the 70s, a guy called Cedric Price, who said, technology is the answer, but what was the question? And I think how we uh, bend some of or, and come up with the best questions is going to be as important. Now, for sure, around certain technologies, there are still risks. So looking at this, the project that we did with Southend, uh, solar, interestingly, uh, amongst the registered social landlords we spoke to, that's kind of baked in now. Uh, uh, that's baked in as something that they will include on all new developments and all retrofits. Uh, whereas, you know, five, ten years ago, that was costly. It was seen as risky. So we do need to think about the, the kind of adoption curve here. For sure, certain technologies are more risky today, but the, the uh, and more costly today rather. But the risk is in action. One of the things that really struck me from uh, the interviews we did with those leading kind of maintenance and repairs within registered social landlord was the what they called the no regrets policy, um, and, and what that meant was they don't want to kind of invest in technologies that might be overtaken uh, in terms of efficiency and in terms of uh, uh, reduced cost in a few years. <laughs> And, and that really scared me, actually, because fundamentally, all uh, climate technologies are going to get cheaper and better. And, and then, at what point do we say actually we need to, we need to do you know some action is good now? So I think there's a real risk in certain 
certain areas of kind of paralysis of saying, well, you know, there's a big uh, and cheap, a more efficient and cheaper technology just round the corner. So we're going to delay, you know, our uh, housing estate retrofit for another two years, another three years. I, I, and I think there does need to be increased capabilities, I guess, within the sector around understanding the the kind of adoption curves, the uh, uh, the cost and business cases, but in a way that it doesn't lead to paralysis, uh, in a way that it leads to action. Can, can, can I ask you about electric vehicle charging points? Because that's, that's quite an interesting area where, you know, th- there has been some rollout of them, but they're predominantly on private driveways. And I pr- presume housing with private driveways is not the most um, environmentally uh, sustainable way of of, of, um, of of thinking about the housing stock going forward. So, I mean, what what sort of questions are, are you, would you would you think of in terms of how we can convert people and make it possible to pe- for people to drive el- electric vehicles? Well, I, I <laughs> in terms of the role of councils, I think they're they're. I, I live in central London, so uh, or south east London, and uh, the council's doing a good job kind of starting to roll out on-street uh, uh, charging uh, more and more um, uh, that's uh, quite reachable. Uh, equally, the, but the bigger challenge is that I find, and I'm an electric vehicle owner, so uh, I, can, I can preach this a little bit, is both the, the fact that it's been left to the market so uh, uh, in terms of the infrastructure for charging points, there's lots of different companies competing and they don't conform to kind of minimum standards. So I know there's some work going on in Bayes just to get the data standards around these charging points right so that there is a national map of charging points. So at the moment, the only way of finding effectively a charging point is to use Zap Maps, which is a, a, a kind of open source and it's a really good uh, uh, source, open source app. Um, but equally, there are lots of gaps in it. So uh, I think there are there is roles for councils to kind of lobby for more effect, more coherent approaches to how that infrastructure is delivered. But fundamentally, it's, it's, it is also still uh, uh, partly a behaviour problem and something where councils can help with prom- promotion of uh, the, the kind of charge points that they have. Can, can I also ask you about future Gov's work with councils on governance models and it's so easy to be daunted about some of the measures that need to be taken here. They're so expensive. And I'm just wondering, you know, it, it sometimes feels hard to see how they can be compatible with a sort of standard four-year um, election cycle. So how, how can the more innovative work you've been doing on governance actually demonstrate a way be, to sort of bypass that the, the, the sort of conventional politics and help people take longer-ranging decisions? So... It's interesting, isn't it, that local government is quite used to dealing with uncomfortable and thorny and difficult spending decisions uh, relatively quickly. So obviously the, 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 the challenges around adult social care in particular over the last uh, couple of decades uh, show that, that, that it is possible. However, we seem sometimes, and local authorities seem sometimes to treat climate as a kind of unique thing. And obviously there are very special characteristics about it. Um, but there are, I think, areas where lo- local authorities can just kind of look across their own internal boundaries and go, well, you know, this, this is a bit like some of the challenges we've faced elsewhere. I, th- I think there is a, the work the FusaGov has been doing is mainly around the community engagement elements of governance. Uh, and certainly in Blackpool, we found that it was useful for both councillors and officers to kind of be, be surprised and strengthened in uh, 
by what citizens felt was was possible. Like citizens are, especially when you you have an assembly that is representatives, citizens are more perhaps uh, aggressive in what they think the council should be doing than perhaps the councillors and uh, the officials themselves. Uh, but I think that's only part of the governance challenge, as you, as you allude to, um, how the council uh, uh, manages its spend, how it expe- um, experiments over and within an electoral cycle, but also an annual budget cycle and also the cycle of kind of council meetings. It currently, there isn't much innovation that we've seen. That's not to say it doesn't exist, but most councils are saying, well, here's our climate action plan. Here's uh, what we expect to achieve in, in, in our term of office. And, you know, we'll see you in four years kind of thing. I think there is something that, that councils either can do together or there possibly needs to be some action by DLUHC which is kind of creating a bit more coherence around the data and information that's collected. Whilst uh, Climate Emergency UK are doing some amazing work, there doesn't seem to be a coherence as, as a, or a, a kind of focus, uh, as Rebecca was alluding to, around a kind of core target. And I think where there is better consistency of information and data, it'll make it easier for, for councils to kind of have a bit more of a agile governance, let's say. It'll make make it easier for them to, to be focused on uh, certain specific issues. So I think there is innovation around governance when it comes to public engagement and, and, and community participation, uh, but I've yet to see significant amounts in terms of how the council operates, uh, how it bends its procurement uh, to, towards climate and so on. I'm, I'm keen to open the conversation up into a bit more of a conversation now. So I, I just wanted to ask more broadly, I mean, it, is enough of local government being sufficiently ambitious on climate change? Maybe you can start with that, Rebecca, please. I, I think the statement of ambition is not the problem. It's great to see really ambitious targets being put forward by local government. There's a bit of a danger though and this definitely came through in the th- th- these interviews we did there's a bit of a danger that if you um you know if 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 you're if you're putting a if you're putting forward a target for um net zero emissions not just for the council but for the whole local area in you know the 2030s that is a huge challenge now i'm all up for challenges but what what our research found was that you then get kickback because people just say, you know, as in officers and politicians, um, just say, well, you know, we, we, we can't do that. And you get, you know, we, we had comments in our interviews and these were anonymous things like just saying, well, you know, that ain't going to happen. And so the, the the distance between that ambition and the ability to meet it um, is really problematic when it comes to motivating staff and actually putting the plans in place. So I'm not saying that to argue for a less ambitious target. I'm saying that because I think we need to be really honest about, you know, it's almost like what I'd love to see is each local authority saying, right, you know, a, a sort of three-tier action plan. This is what we're doing right now because we can, you know, we have the budget and the resources. This is what we're really going to stretch and do, even though no one's asking us to do it. 
And then level three, this is what we really can't do unless unless X and Y and Z happens. And at the moment, that that transparency is not there. There are, you know, local leaders brilliantly saying, we'll give it a go. But that isn't going to be enough. And the danger is that then there's a bit of a backlash by the very people who have to deliver it, that is officers and, and politicians themselves. Kevin, I mean, it sounds like you're very ambitious in Lancaster, but what's you know, is local government more broadly ambitious enough? I, I think uh, Rebecca is absolutely right. And um, if you look at, uh, as we have at Climate Emergency UK, at every action plan, there are some wonderful plans, but they they don't, if you, if you match that up against the scale of the challenge of what needs to happen, and needs to happen quickly and needs to happen long before 2050, they just don't, don't match up. And the idea of having a plan that says this is what needs to happen but we can't do it is a, is a really good one that, um, that needs um, putting forward because it's happened with our own council that we, we, we managed to both approve a road that is going to um, blow our carbon budget you know, out, out of the water and yet, in the same breath, recommit to a 2030 target for the whole district. So there is a lot of fantasy thinking around, a lot of un- unreality as to just the real scale of the, the problem, which is not going to be helped unless the government really completely steps up with new powers, new funding, new frameworks, and, and starts to tell us what 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 it wants from us because we're making it up at the moment and some of us are good at it and some of us quite frankly are are really poor at it i mean could could you proactively go to the government and say this is what we're 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 wanting to do you give us the power and could that be the the core of your your argument going forward and do do you think they'd listen well we know that they're not listening um just at the environmental audit committee about 10 days ago ministers said that we don't we, we don't have any plans for new powers, frameworks or funding. Um, we're not convinced that um, local authorities are maxing out on their existing powers and funding. Now, they've been saying that for a couple of years. Bay, Bay said that at least two years ago. And that really is, you know, not taking responsibility for what needs to happen. There are limits to what local authorities can do. They, they're not all capable. They, they don't all have the political will, but they certainly don't have the resources to, um, to do very much. So it, it's a real cop-out from government. They, they, they're, they're refusing to do it. And, and I'm afraid the, the lobbying that, uh, at the level that needs to happen is just not happening. The local government association are the people who should be doing that. UK 100 have really stepped into the breach there and are doing a lot more than they used to in that area, but no, I mean we're we're not we're not shouting loud enough about um, about what needs to happen. Steph, can I ask you? I mean, do you see that ambition there, and do you also see the skill set there that local government needs to to, to move things on? Um, I think I, I strongly agree with Kevin in that yeah, the ambition varies hugely as it should or not as it should as it does uh, uh, politically. Um, but I think the the resources uh, are a challenge, but it is combined with the with the capabilities, the types of skills that local authorities might need uh, to address some of these issues. So 
uh, on the Smart Local Energy Project. Um, there, there are various councils uh, south end of the lead, but other councils uh, are involved. And it's quite clear to see uh, how some councils have the ability to engage in complex technical and funding decisions around energy infrastructure, which uh, is, is going to be a big part of the solution, uh, and others candidly don't. Uh, and I think how authorities might need to share that uh, uh, certain capabilities, I think, is, is really important. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be shared kind of across uh, coterminous kind of geographical boundaries, but like how do, how does the local authorities share the need for these kind of special specialist skills? Because sometimes the risk is that you're at the you're dependent on consultants and you're dependent on a, a kind of one shot bit of technical expertise that then disappears uh, and and then in a year in two years something emerges that's similar and you depend on that again uh, and I don't think that's a sustainable way for local authorities to build some of the technical capabilities they have. Equally, obviously, they shouldn't each be employing a, a um, uh, energy infrastructure kind of finance manager, let's say, um, but they need some easy access to that. So I think how local government builds that capability, I think, is going to be really important because some of the point that, you know, I was equally infuriated by uh, central government's kind of uh, challenges to local government saying, oh, you've got enough powers and you're not using them properly and you're not using the budget. Well, that's because they don't necessarily have the local government doesn't necessarily have the capability to draw on that effectively. Uh, so there's money in a pot, perhaps, but actually you need specialist advice and guidance to get to it. It's not saying the local authorities don't want it, uh, but it's actually difficult to get to. So I think kind of more more general funding uh, and more general powers uh, around uh, addressing the climate emergency probably would help local government kind of uh, uh, mop, that, mop that up and, and want more and be able to demonstrate more as well. So we're coming to the end of this podcast now, um, but I, I want you all to tell me one one thing that you think. So we're, we're, we're just weeks away from COP26, so it's a, a very politically important time. It is an opportunity to move the agenda forward. So can you each tell me one thing where you think local government can really, even allowing for its present skill set, how, how a local government can push the um, its response to climate change forward and one plea to the governments that the government must do to make to help councils actually make a difference locally. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to start on this, please? Thanks, Nick. My number one would be look at the big decisions and see them as climate decisions. So, um, you know, in Cumbria, that's the coal mine. In in, in Lancashire, as Kevin said, that might be a, a road. It might it might just as well be, um, you know, a new health strategy. But seeing the links between the big things that local areas, local authorities need to do and climate and making sure that you are not making silly decisions which make your climate targets even harder to reach, I would say that's the number one thing. The... Um, in terms of what national governments should do, I would say they need to set very clear expectations. And then, as Steph was saying, free up local areas to um, to then respond to that expectation in ways that they know best. So an end to these weird little, you know, budgets for, you know, a few million pounds here and there, if, you, if, if you're good at writing bids, and much more um, freedom and um, autonomy 
for local areas to meet the climate challenge in in a way that really builds local communities and brings those jobs in. Um, Kevin, what's your plea for local government and your plea to the government? Okay, for local government, uh, while we don't have the um, all those things from national government, is you have fantastic resources in your community. You have expertise, you have people very willing, you have retired engineers, all sorts of people. Make use of that, collaborate. Don't do your usual thing of, of consultation and then going away and, and doing your own thing. You've got to work together with your communities to um, to, to do this because... Well, we need that, even if the government does step step up. That's that's how we need to go forward. As far as government's concerned, all of the things that have been said about powers framing uh, frameworks and things like that, the one thing that was such a huge dis- disappointment was the Green Homes Grant. Get that sorted. Get the people trained to to be able to to do all of these things, to be able to install renewable energy and so on. So there needs to be a massive increase in um, in skills to, to deliver this. And Steph, your plea to local government and your plea to central government? So I think to local government, act like act like it's emergency uh, and, and kind of uh, think how you can operate more uh, quickly, uh, more fleet of foot, but also so you can collaborate with other other uh, local authorities to kind of learn quickly and uh, and scale the good solutions. Uh, I think my my plea to central government, I'll, I'll be cheeky and kind of add for two. I think it's the, the other end of the lens that Rebecca talked about. So uh, all the big decisions that uh, central government might take will are local, uh, uh, will need to be delivered locally. Uh, and I think that should be an element of a wake-up call to them to say, well, actually properly fund uh, uh, the sector and think about the implementation of what central government might think are the big decisions. And then I think the other one, again, would be... Uh, the same as Kevin, uh, retrofit is is the biggest uh, opportunity. It's a massive challenge, and candidly, uh, you know, uh, uh, both uh, Green Homes Grant and Green Deal were abject failures because it. I think they didn't really include local government. They didn't really uh, think about uh, how those schemes would be implemented. So I think think of a, a mixed economy. Let's say in terms of retrofit, there are great examples out there like Carbon Co-op, which is a kind of uh, a really well designed approach. Uh, to delivering retrofit locally. So think about that kind of uh, uh, mixed economy where where cooperatives, where local authorities and the market can be delivering retrofit. Uh, I think that's a big, big opportunity and a big thing for government to sort out. Brilliant. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Local Authority. Thank you to my panellists, Kevin Freer, Rebecca Willis and Steph Webb. Uh, The Local Authority will be back next month. Goodbye. LGC is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. FutureGov is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to wearefuturegov.com. We'll be back next month with another episode of The Local Authority. Thanks for listening.